to Luke chapter 11, where we're going to be looking at verses 37 to 54. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. We'll do another four weeks in the gospel according to Luke, and then our brother Trey will preach for us, and then it'll be Advent, and it's already that time of the year. Um, So we're looking forward to that. This morning, Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54, and if you would, please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked Him to dine with Him, so He went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you were full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens too hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were Entering. As Jesus went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, we need your help today. We pray, Lord, that you would please open our hearts and minds to understand the Scriptures, that we would behold wonderful things, God, in your law, in your word, and that we would be conformed more to the image of Christ. Father, I pray that you would keep me from error. I pray that you would grant all of us discernment in Christ Jesus so that we would hold fast to the truth. God, we do live in the midst of a wicked and evil generation. We pray for help, Father, to stand firm. We pray, Lord, that we would know truth from error. And we pray, God, that the discernment to hold fast to the truth would begin in our own hearts, Father, that we would be a humble and repentant people before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout Luke chapter 11, we've heard Jesus say a number of rather difficult and hard things. This generation is an evil generation, Jesus said in verse 29. Whoever is not with me is against me, Jesus said, verse 23. The men of Nineveh will rise up 
at the judgment and condemn this generation, Jesus predicted. Verse 32. So as the chapter comes to a close, this is what we've witnessed over and over again, particularly towards the end of Luke chapter 11. Jesus saying rather difficult and hard things. But as we come to these final verses today, we find that Jesus has saved His sharpest words for last. If if Luke chapter 11 recounts Jesus saying hard things, then this passage is the hardest. You heard it as we read. Here we find Jesus utterly denouncing the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders. If this is an evil generation, then Jesus wants everyone to know that the wickedness starts at the top. From the Pharisees and the scribes on down, the religion of Jesus' day is largely devoid of life, opposed to God, and infected to the core with hypocrisy. And therefore, everyone, and Jesus means everyone, ought to repent of their wickedness and receive the Word of God as He preaches it. That's really the takeaway of this passage. No amount of outward performance, no display of clever religious reasoning, no no lip service devotion can bring you to God, Jesus says. The only way for corrupt and depraved sinners to be saved is by submitting themselves to the Word of God, the good news of God that Jesus Himself comes to preach. Repent, Jesus says. And listen to what I say. And that really gives us the marching orders, our marching orders, for understanding this text today. What this passage demands of us is humility. It demands of us humility. The humility to see where we too ought to repent. In fact, the quickest way, I'll just be straightforward with you, The quickest way to misunderstand this passage is to assume that Jesus is not talking about you. It's the quickest way to misunderstand it. The rebuke Jesus gives to the religious leaders also confronts you and me. So our starting place has to be humility. A willingness willingness to see ourselves in Jesus' rebuke And to hear in His sharp words a call to repentance in our own lives as well. So in terms of an outline, we're going to consider six marks of hypocritical religion. By the way, this is why you preach expositionally through books of the Bible. Because no one would ever pick this sermon outline on their own. Six marks of hypocritical religion from Jesus That's largely going to follow the woes that Jesus issues. And we'll move pretty quickly through those since there's six of them. And then at the end, we're going to come back and answer the question of this passage. What hope is there for hypocrites? So, six marks of hypocritical religion from Jesus. Number one, hypocritical religion minimizes true holiness. Hypocritical religion minimizes true holiness. Luke sets the scene in verse 37 as Jesus is invited to share a meal with a Pharisee. The Pharisees, you remember, viewed themselves as guardians of the Old Testament law. They were so concerned with protecting the commandments that they built an entire system of tradition 
that surrounded the Scriptures. So think of that tradition like a fence. It kept people from ever actually breaking the actual commandments. That was the reasoning behind their tradition. But over time, as you probably would expect, that tradition became essentially as important to the Pharisees as the law itself. That explains the controversy that erupts in verse 38. The Pharisee is stunned that Jesus does not wash before dinner. He's not upset over a lack of personal hygiene. He's upset that Jesus doesn't follow the tradition regarding ceremonial washings, which was very elaborate, and it went beyond anything prescribed in the Old Testament. This is key, friends. In the Pharisee's mind, Jesus is not careful about purity. Jesus is playing fast and loose with holiness, at least according to the Pharisee. So he's astonished. Jesus responds, and he does so with a stinging rebuke. Look at verse 39. And Jesus said to him, the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. In short, the Pharisees are hypocrites, Jesus says. They have elaborate rituals for cleansing the outside of things like cups and dishes, but in the end, they don't do anything about the inside of things. They don't clean the dirt and the grime that's inside on the human heart. For all of their bluster about purity, the Pharisees are really just hiding behind a facade. They're hiding behind these outward rituals, thinking that that's enough. So Jesus confronts them with their foolishness, of trying to hide from God. Look at verse 40. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? This is the Pharisees' problem, friends. They misunderstand holiness because they misunderstand God. Their view of God is too small and therefore their view of holiness is too limited. If we get the plate clean enough, they think, then God won't notice that our hearts are greedy and wicked. If we keep all the outside rules, then God won't notice that inwardly we're unclean. Friends, that's the very height of foolishness. As Jesus says, God made both the outside and the inside, which means He sees all of you. You can't fool God with hypocritical religion. The only person you're fooling is yourself. In God's eyes, there is no public you and private you. In God's eyes, there's just you. All of you. And His expectation is that all of you be clean and holy and pure before Him. You're foolish to think you can clean the outside. And that covers it up. And so Jesus directs the Pharisee to where the correction is needed. He directs the Pharisee to the heart. Notice verse 41. But give his alms things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Alms in the Old Testament were gifts of mercy to people in need. You would give alms as a display of devotion to God. But Jesus is speaking symbolically here in verse 41. He does, he's saying, don't just go through the motions of outward religion. Right? Don't just go through the motions. Instead, give God the offering of your heart. Give God a truly godly life. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, that's, that's always the correction to hypocrisy. It's to recognize 
that holiness is never merely outward observance of rules. Holiness is never merely an outward observance of rules. True holiness in the eyes of God always begins in the heart. It always flows outward from a life that has been transformed by grace and is now submitted to the Word of God at the very core of your being. Holiness can never be just outward. It has to be inward. Holiness requires a transformation of the heart. And so note what this means, friends. It means that no amount of religious observance is enough to make you holy. No amount of religious observance is enough to cover up the sin of your heart. Apart from God's grace, our hearts are greedy and full of wickedness. You can construct the most elaborate ritual that produces the most meticulous approach to religion, but as Jesus says here, that elaborate ritual won't change a single thing about your heart. It won't change a single thing about who you really are. You can't be holy just through outward things. Why is that? Why can't outward rituals clean up your life? Why? Well, it's because every sin at its core is an assault on the glory of God. Sin is not breaking rules, it's assaulting God. Do you see the difference? Imagine thinking that the creator of the universe could be bought off with a few rituals. Imagine thinking that the Almighty God could be fooled with just outward performance. Do you see the foolishness of such a scheme? But that's what we're trying to do whenever we pursue hypocritical religion. Listen, we may think that the problem with hypocrisy is that it tells a lie about us. And on some level that's true. But the real heinousness of hypocrisy is that it tells a lie about God. It tells the world that God can be satisfied with a few outward things. It makes God small. God is not small. And sin is no small matter because sin is an assault against the glory of God. And that's what we ought to see. Paradoxically, if you want to have a right view of holiness, it means that first of all, you need to have a right view of sin. If we think that sin is small, then we'll often be content with hypocritical outward solutions. But if we see sin for what it is, then we'll recognize that no amount of religion, no amount of ritual, no amount of rule keeping could ever clean our hearts up in the sight of God. And then we'll cast ourselves on grace and on mercy. If we want to deal with sin like Jesus does, then we have to go where Jesus goes. And that's to the heart. The Pharisee thinks that the outward is enough and Jesus says, no, you misunderstand God. You've minimized true holiness because you've minimized God. That's the first mark. The second mark of hypocritical religion continues right along with that theme. Notice verse 42 where the second mark is found. Hypocritical religion substitutes little things for the main thing. Hypocritical religion substitutes little things for the main thing, Jesus begins a series of woes against the Pharisee. A woe is simply an expression of lament that expresses uh, how dangerous a situation is. So Jesus is vocalizing what a perilous position 
the Pharisee is in at this point. And this first woe captures the Pharisee's tendency to substitute little things for the main thing. Notice verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Now the Old Testament instructed uh, Israel to tithe on their yearly crops. You were supposed to bring God a portion of your, of your harvest. But the Pharisees decided to go further. Remember, they built a fence around the actual commandment. So they would be extra sure to obey. So they went further, and they would even tithe on their herb gardens, which is the smallest yield of, of, uh, of, your, of your crops. And of course, they believed that they were being very concerned about holiness in doing this. They believed that this demonstrated their commitment to really being pure before God. Again, Jesus points out how foolish this is. No amount of minuscule ritual can take the place of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus means when he talks about justice, love of neighbor, and the love of God. He's summarizing the first and second great commandments. He's saying, it doesn't matter if you tithe mint and herbs. If you don't love God and love your neighbor, you're unclean. So notice what the Pharisees have done at this point. They've skirted the heart of the law. They've made an end run around the heart of the law by emphasizing their observance of something that's not even in the law. Why would they do this? Why would they do such a thing? It sounds ridiculous when you say it like that. So why would they do this? Well, think about the cost of tithing your herb garden compared to the cost of loving your neighbor as yourself. Which one is easier? Well, tithing your herb garden, of course. You just tweeze off a little corner of the mint leaf and then you put it in the offering box and then you're done. It's not that difficult, right? It's not hard. And then when you're driving home later that day and you pass your neighbor's house and your heart begins to convict you that you haven't actually loved your neighbor as yourself, you can say, no, 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 God, I care about the little things. I'm committed to you. I even care about the little things. I tithe my mint garden. You just drive right on past your neighbor's house. It would be a bit like a guy at your workplace who never parks in the handicapped space at work and he prides himself on the fact that this makes him a good employee. I, I never park I never park in those places and I'm a good employee. And then he polices everybody else where they park and then meanwhile he gets out of his correctly parked car and he goes inside the office and he steals from his employer. It's, it's like that. It's, it's taking a trivial thing tithing your mint garden, it's taking a trivial thing, parking rules, and substituting it for the main thing, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. To say it another way, you lower the standard of holiness to something that you can meet, and then you, make that, you take that self-constructed standard and you use it to dull the voice of God's Word. And you say, no, I'm not disobeying God. I even do the small stuff. No, all you've done is lowered the standard of holiness to something that you can do. That's hypocritical religion. It substitutes little things for the main thing, and it does so in order to create a made-up standard that we can all meet on our own. Mark number three of hypocritical religion. It loves the appearance of godliness, but lacks the substance. Hypocritical religion loves the appearance of godliness but lacks the substance. 
We see this in Jesus' second and third woes to the Pharisees, verses 43 and 44. This is really a two-part critique from Jesus. It begins verse 43 by pointing out the Pharisees' pride. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. So on a basic level, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their very public arrogance. When the Pharisees go out, they like to be hailed as important. When they show up at church, they want to sit in the place where everybody can see them and where everybody will honor them. In short, the Pharisees pride themselves on their position and they want other people to see their position. Now, pride in and of itself is a problem. Pride is at the core of hypocrisy. Why does a hypocrite put up a front and pretend to be something he's not? Because he wants the prestige of that thing that he's not. Right? So pride animates hypocrisy. And that alone, that alone would be reason enough for Jesus to rebuke the Pharisees for pride. But there's another piece to Jesus' rebuke. It comes in verse 44. Notice how Jesus exposes what the Pharisees are truly like. Verse 44, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. What's that about? Well, the Old Testament helps us. Numbers chapter 19, God warned Israel that any contact with a corpse or with a grave would make you ceremonially unclean. That is, for seven days, you wouldn't be allowed to participate in the worship of God's people, and then you would have to offer a special sacrifice for your cleansing. So, when Jesus calls the Pharisees unmarked graves, He's saying that all of their outward pride masks what they're really like. They're dead. Unclean. Impure before God. They boast about how pure and great and, and, and good they are, but in reality they're unclean and they make others unclean as well. So these are not people to be celebrated and promoted. These are not people who should sit in the best seats in the synagogue. The Pharisees are people to be avoided. They look good on the surface, but underneath there's contamination and corruption and death and uncleanness. Friends, we shouldn't miss the warning here. Maintaining a public appearance should never be mistaken for true holiness. Let me say that again. Maintaining a public appearance should never be mistaken for true holiness. Craving public prestige is no substitute for having a pure heart before God. This is one of the subtle dangers of pride. By trying to maintain an image, we end up blinding ourselves to what we truly need. And that's transformation of the heart. And that's what we see with the Pharisees. Hypocritical religion loves the appearance of godliness but lacks the substance. Mark number 4 from verses 45 and 46. Hypocritical religion demands holiness but does nothing to help. The critical religion demands holiness but does nothing to help. At this point, a lawyer speaks up, verse 45, and he says, Jesus, by saying all of this, you insult us too. So maybe the lawyer thinks that, that Jesus doesn't understand how, how weighty his words are. And so Jesus says, oh, have I not made myself clear? Here's a series of woes for you too. Jesus is an equal opportunity rebuker. 
And so he issues a series of woes against the lawyers as well, starting in verse 45. And this first woe takes on the scribes' harsh legalism that harms other people. Look, verse 46. And Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So what Jesus is confronting is a do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do approach to spiritual leadership. Do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do. The scribes, that's who the lawyers are, they're the scribes. The scribes, with their extra-biblical system of tradition, were placing heavy burdens on people's backs. All of those fence-keeping rules were burdening people. In fact, they were crushing people. The, the Pharisaical religion was crushing people with regulations that no one could carry. And then to make matters worse, the scribes were not willing to help the very people that they themselves burdened. That's the sense of verse 46. You burden everyone, then you don't even help them. They tied up these boulders of law on people's backs and they wouldn't even lift a finger to help them. But at the same time, the scribes were experts at getting out from underneath those regulations themselves. <laughs> the scribes were masters of biblical interpretation, you might say. What they said was biblical interpretation. And they were often able to find loopholes that normal people wouldn't find. And so the scribes would wiggle out from underneath those burdens while at the same time putting more burdens on people that crushed them. You see, it's do as I say, not as I do. It's that kind of approach to spiritual leadership. And what it reveals is a calloused attitude towards the very people that they were meant to lead. <laughs> it's a general rule of thumb, friends. Bad spiritual leadership demands of other people what it won't do itself. It's just bad leadership. That's what the scribes are doing. Do as I say, not as I do. Hypocritical religion demands holiness from others, but does nothing to help them. Mark number 5, from verses 47 to 51. Hypocritical religion affirms God's word in theory, but opposes God's word in practice. It affirms God's word in theory, but it opposes God's word in practice. Jesus makes an historical argument here, and his point is to warn the religious leaders of judgment. It starts in verses 47 and 48. Look what Jesus says. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. What is Jesus getting at? Well, you have to remember the history of the prophets in Old Testament Israel. More often than not, Old Testament Israel rejected God's prophets. Take Jeremiah, for example. I just finished reading through Jeremiah in the Bible reading plan that some of you are doing too. Take Jeremiah. He spent the vast majority of his ministry where? In prison. The people of Israel rejected him. Or, or take all of the prophets that wicked Queen Jezebel killed in 1 Kings 18. She killed all of them. 
That was the pattern of prophetic ministry in Old Testament Israel. God would send His people His Word through the prophets and the people would reject God's Word and kill the prophets. That's Israel's history. And here in Luke 11, Jesus is saying that the scribes and the Pharisees carry on that lethal legacy. Your fathers killed the prophets, Jesus tells them, and you build their tombs. In other words, the tombs that you build prove you are the heirs of hard-hearted Israel. You're proving your sinister lineage. This is why Jesus in verse 29 called them an evil generation. Because they are carrying to completion Israel's history of rejecting the Word of God. That's why they're evil. And then to make His point clear, Jesus proceeds to summarize all of redemptive history and connect it with Himself. Look at verses 49 to 51. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now there's a lot to consider in those three verses. I want us to see the main point, though. There's a lot we could talk about. I want us to talk about the main point for a second. Jesus mentions two people by name, Abel and Zechariah. Why pick those two figures? What makes them significant? Well, Abel, of course, refers to Adam and Eve's son who was murdered by his brother in Genesis chapter 4. Jewish tradition considered Abel to be a forerunner of the prophets. And and even the New Testament, in, in in the book of Hebrews, the New Testament considers Abel's life to be a prophetic anticipation of the righteousness that comes by faith. Hebrews chapter 11. So from the very first book of the Bible, this pattern of rejecting those who speak the word of God begins with Abel from the very first book of the Bible. What about Zechariah? Who's that? Well, most likely, the Zechariah here refers to a man in 2 Chronicles 24 who was killed for confronting Israel with their disobedience to God. So Zechariah spoke to the people God's word and he said, you're disobeying God's law. And the people said, oh really? We're going to kill you. And so they killed him. Just like Cain killed Abel. Now, here's what's fascinating. 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. The the order of books in the Hebrew Bible is different than in the English Old Testament translation. And 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. So notice what Jesus has done. Abel in Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew Scriptures, and Zechariah in 2 Chronicles, the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. Those two men, Abel and Zechariah, represent the entire history, beginning to end, of God's messengers being opposed and rejected and killed for speaking the Word of God. And now Jesus says that entire history of these people rejecting the Word of God, that entire history is culminating right now in Jesus' own ministry. That's the point of His image here. Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophetic message. He is the Word made flesh. He's the final revelation of God. 
All of the Old Testament is summed up in Jesus. And tragically, all of Israel's history of rejecting that word of God is coming to a fore, it's coming to a point right now in Jesus. And in the rejection that the people whom He was sent to save offer to Him. They they will reject Him and, and kill Him. This is why Jesus calls them an evil generation. Because all of Israel's wicked history culminates right now as Israel rejects their Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's what the Jewish religious leaders don't understand. By rejecting Jesus, all that they prove is that they are the heirs of hard-hearted Israel. Of those who do not receive the word of God. It's one thing to reject Jeremiah. It's another thing entirely to reject the one to whom Jeremiah pointed. And that's what Jesus' generation is doing. In fact, they're so committed to doing it, they go out in verses 53 and 54, and they take their opposition up a notch, and they begin to try to trap Jesus in their questions. The only place this will end is at the cross. Friends, what we should know at this point is that the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones in Jesus' day who would have professed to have the greatest reverence for the Word of God. These are the people who would have defended the divine inspiration of the Scriptures. These are the people who would have said that God's Word is authoritative, all of it, without doubt. And yet, they're the ones that deny and reject the very thing they claim to uphold. That's hypocritical religion. It affirms God's Word in theory, but then it denies God's Word in practice. And there's a rather strong rebuke to American evangelicalism in that. Mark number 6 from 52. Hypocritical religion hinders people from knowing God. Hypocritical religion hinders people from knowing God. You could make the case that verse 52 is the worst of all the woes. Notice what Jesus says. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge... You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered others who were entering. Friends, the key of knowledge refers to the truth needed to understand God's plan of redemption. And Jesus says the scribes have taken away that key. They conceal the truth of God's word. They obscure the means of entering into God's redemptive plan. And they hinder other people from being saved as well. And the result is tragic. The scribes don't enter in and they hinder people from doing so. Friends, those are the spiritual stakes that are at play anytime God's word is opened. Will the key of knowledge, will the truth of God's revelation be made clear or will it be obscured? Those are the spiritual stakes at play every time someone opens the scriptures. Will people be led to see and embrace God's way by faith or will they be hindered by the hypocrisy and pride of other people? That's why God hates hypocrisy so much. It's it's not just that He hates it because it's deceptive. He hates it because it harms other people and leads them astray. We've all seen that effect before, haven't we? I, I, I know a guy who used to be very committed. He used to be very committed to 
to the Lord. He even, he even worked at a church for a time. And, and now he spends his life. His, his, his life's work now is to oppose the things of God. How do you do that? How do you go from serving God to opposing Him? Well, there's a lot that goes into it. But in this guy's situation, at least part of it was he was very, very harmed by a hypocritical teacher who said one thing and did another. And the guy said, after a while, you know what? I'm fed up with that. And he turned his back on the Lord. Hypocritical religion hinders people from knowing God. So we've reached the end. I told you these are hard words from Jesus. Hypocritical religion minimizes true holiness. It substitutes little things for the main thing. It loves the appearance of godliness but lacks the substance. Demands holiness but does nothing to help. Affirms God's word in theory but opposes God's word in practice. And perhaps worst of all, hinders people from knowing God. These are hard things. And part of what makes them so hard is because we know that we're guilty of such hypocrisy. Each of us, in some way, has displayed or is displaying one of these marks. We're not any better than the Pharisees. We're not any farther along than the scribes. We're just as prone to these things. And so, that brings me to the question that in, that we'll end with this morning. This is, I would argue, the question of the text. The question is this. What hope is there for hypocrites? What hope is there for hypocrites? What hope is there for people who recognize themselves in Jesus' words? The answer, friends, comes in verse 46. Or better yet, the path to the answer begins in verse 46. So look back there with me, verse 46. Jesus says the scribes burden people with burdens that are hard to bear. So if you have ever read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, that's the image, the big boulder on a person's back, right? Weighed down with burdens they can't bear. That burden is a standard of spiritual performance that you can't possibly maintain. That's what the scribes do. They burden people with these crushing loads. But if you listen to the scriptures, brothers and sisters, this is also where you can find the hope. That word burden that Jesus uses in verse 46, it's not used very often in the New Testament. But it is used by Jesus in one other place. Matthew chapter 11. And there Jesus says this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, Jesus promises, and my burden, my burden is light. Friends, the only hope for hypocrites is the freedom of the gospel that Jesus provides. The only hope for hypocrites is the freedom of the gospel that Jesus provides. That's really what Luke 11 is about. There are two paths. One paved with hypocrisy that leads to spiritual death. And one paved with the gospel that leads to spiritual life. The hypocritical religion of the human heart leans only to the grave. But the grace of the gospel in Jesus Christ leads to forgiveness and life everlasting. And this forgiveness, this life everlasting, is something that only Jesus can give. I will give you rest, Jesus says. I will give you rest. Surprisingly, 
That's where Jesus' rebuke should lead us, to confess our sin, to confess our tendency towards hypocrisy, and to trust that Christ alone can save us from the greed and wickedness of our own hearts. So if you're not a Christian today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus by grace through faith this morning, then God's Word is calling you to repent of your sin and to believe in the Gospel. There is no religious act you can perform that will make you right with God. I just want to be very clear. If you're not a Christian this morning and you came to church thinking, well, at least God's going to be happy with me today, you are wrong. There is no religious act that you can perform that will make you right with God. There is no standard you can invent and then use it to tell yourself that you're good enough. There is the only hope for sinners and for hypocrites is to trust that Jesus Christ bore the burden of our sin on Himself at the cross and that by faith He now gives His perfect righteousness to all who will trust Him so that everyone who believes is freed from all that the law could not free us from. That's the good news for sinners and it's even good news for hypocrites. And God's Word this morning, if you're not a Christian, is calling you to believe that message. I want you to hear me very clearly. If you are not trusting in Christ and repenting of your sin, your only hope to get the burden off your back is Jesus Christ. Your mom and dad can't do it for you. A church can't do it for you. No religious ritual will do it for you. You can only remove the burden by trusting Christ and confessing your need for Him. If you are a Christian today, if you are repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ, then the Scriptures are calling you, once again, to see that Christ alone provides the rest that your soul craves. How many of you need rest? Look, even as Christians, we often continue to trust in our religious performance, don't we? Hoping that we've done things well enough. But as you know, like I know, that spiritual treadmill doesn't lead anywhere good. It doesn't lead to rest and to righteousness. It only wears you out and saps your joy and at best produces self-righteousness. And so for Christians, the call of this passage is to reaffirm that Christ alone is our hope in the Christian life. That Christ alone is our aim and our pursuit. That's the gospel remedy to hypocrisy. It's to recognize that even even my obedience needs to be marked on, marked on some level with repentance. We should be quick to confess our sin. We should be quick to pursue holiness by grace. And we should be quick to admit that at the end of the day, at the end of both our good days and our bad days, still all we have is Christ. So if I was going to sum up the, the, the application for a believer from this passage, it's this. It's hard for hypocrisy to grow in a heart that is enthralled with Jesus. It's hard for hypocrisy to grow in a heart that is enthralled with Jesus. Don't chase performance. Chase Christ. And trust Him and be satisfied in Him. So wherever you are this morning, I pray you leave today with a renewed sight of the Savior. There is hope for sinners. There's even hope for hypocrites. And that hope is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So may God give us grace to trust Him, to love Him more than we love ourselves, and to treasure Him more than anything this world can offer. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. 
we acknowledge, Lord, that as the prophets say, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before you. Even on our best days, we need repentance and faith far more than we would care to admit. So help us, God, to be humble. Help us to be repentant before you. Help us to confess and to acknowledge that left to ourselves, we would be adherents of hypocritical religion and we wouldn't know the difference. Father, give us a greater vision for who you are so that we would have a greater longing for holiness and therefore a greater dependence upon grace. Help us, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand as we close? is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter.
stall stand.